the National Archives podcast series, The Summer of 69, presented by Mark Dunton. You can find speaker's notes and featured documents to accompany this podcast at nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts. Those were the best days of my life, sang Brian Adams in his famous track, Summer of 69. Brian Adams' song appears to be a straightforward exercise in nostalgia for the time that he brought his first real six-string guitar from the Five and Dime, and he sings about forming a band with some guys from school. But actually, the song is not autobiographical for Brian Adams, who was born in Canada to English parents, by the way, as he was only nine in the summer of 69 like me, in fact. Apparently, Adams has denied that, it's, that the song has got anything to do with the year 1969. But I think that many people have interpreted it as being about that year, including those born after the 60s, who have picked up on the feeling that there was something special and rather magical about this time and the summer that seemed to last forever. Now that we're 40 years on from that time, I thought it would make a great theme for a look at the British experience of the summer of 69, um, as reflected in the very rich archives that we hold here at the National Archives. And in this talk, I intend to take you on a tour of this eventful period, looking at high politics, historic events, and popular culture, I'm going to weave my way between those elements and create a narrative which will concentrate on the events of June, July and August of that year, although I might stray outside those date boundaries at times, I will in fact, in order to put things in context. I'm also going to draw out some conclusions about this heady time, about the contradictory ways that you can view the late 60s. So... Just to set the scene, 1968 had been a tumultuous year. A rebellious impulse swept around the world. Street protests became the common international currency, and in countries as varied as France, Poland, Japan, the United States, Mexico, and many others, the ruling authorities were challenged by strikes, demonstrations, and barricades. The protests had several causes. Opposition to the Vietnam War was a key factor. But this fever pitch receded in 1969. Perhaps this reflected the student revolutionaries coming to terms with the ways of the world and a reaction against violence as a means of trying to change society. As a generalisation, the mood of 1969, as reflected in youth culture, was more gentle, associated with hippie values and calls for peace and love. Now, this might give the impression that 69 was a quiet year. Not a bit of it, as we shall see. It was a very eventful time. So let's begin the story by starting with a British political story. And politically, one of the most significant developments in 69 was all down to this woman, the forthright and flirtatious Barbara Castle. As Minister for Transport, she famously introduced the breathalyser to deal with the problem of drink driving. In April 68, Harold Wilson made her Secretary of State for Employment and First Secretary of State. Barbara Castle had a strong bond with Harold Wilson. By 1968, inflation was becoming an increasing problem and was a major factor in the growth of union militancy in this period. Industrial disputes were becoming more and more common. In 1968, some 4.7 million days were lost to strikes. The newspapers were saturated with reports of unofficial wildcat strikes. The Times called 1968 the year of the strike. By the autumn of 68, Castle believed that tough action was needed and that the government should take a lead. Castle was well aware that she was heading into stormy waters. She said, I am under no illusions that I may be committing political suicide. Her biographer, Anne Perkins, referred to this heavy sense of martyrdom which was reflected in her diaries at the time. 
And this was the white paper which brought on the storm, published on the 16th of January, 69. The title, In Place of Strife, now seems heavily ironic. Um, it was suggested by Castle's husband, Ted, a day before publication. Its proposals included the following. The Employment Secretary should have the discretionary power to order strike ballots. In unofficial strikes, the government could order a pause of 28 days before strikes took place. And with, and with regard to inter-union disputes, which normally meant disputes between rival unions for recognition from an employer, I think those used to be a lot more common than they are today, the government could refer these disputes to an industrial board for a binding decision. And this was backed up with penal clauses. They would have to comply with the board's recommendations, otherwise they would face heavy fines and ultimately prison. Now, a Gallup opinion poll indicated considerable public support for the measures, but leading trade unionists such as Jack Jones, Hugh Scanlon and Vic Feather were adamantly opposed. Both the Transport and General Workers Union and the Amalgamated Engineering Union asked their sponsored MPs to vote against Castle's bill. There were strong rumblings of discontent on the Labour backbenches. Tension grew and grew. In early June, there was a weekend of secret talks with Jones, Scanlon and Feather. At one point, Harold Wilson said to Scanlon, get your tanks off my lawn, Huey. Now, we can see that the stakes were set very high over in place of strife, shown by this extract from a Downing Street meeting during the early summer of 69, 8th of June to be, to be precise. The first Secretary of State is Barbara Castle. To quote it, the first Secretary said it was important for the government to stand firm. She had lived through such pressure before, e.g. on the Fords dispute. The government had created problems for itself by losing its nerve on major issues, such as prices and income policy and House of Lords reform. The Prime Minister said that he trembled to think what the effects would be abroad and on Stirling if the government simply withdrew its own proposals with nothing in their place. It should be remembered that we were dealing with people who had spent all their life negotiating and who were masters of brinkmanship. Wilson had a very difficult time indeed in the spring and summer of 69. His attempt to reform the House of Lords, mentioned in the document we've just looked at, collapsed in failure, and opposition to Castle's bill mounted. There were reports of manoeuvrings in Cabinet and a great deal of press speculation that James Callaghan, Home Secretary, would challenge Wilson for the leadership. And also Roy Jenkins, Chancellor of the Exchequer. There, was, there were rumblings that he might challenge too. And on May the 4th, Wilson made a speech at the Festival Hall where he made an audacious joke. Ben Pimlott, his biographer, describes this. Wilson announced, I know what is going on, and paused. Pimlott writes, There was an audible intake of breath from the audience as his listeners waited in alarm for some embarrassingly paranoid accusation. Then came the punchline, I am going on. The floor erupted in applause and laughter, and the press reaction, for once, was good. James Callaghan was totally opposed to In Place of Strife. He had close relations with trade union leaders, and he saw himself as the spokesman for the ordinary union member, the keeper of the cloth cap. That's how he styled himself. He voted against the plans, his own government's plans, at a meeting of Labour's national executive. Now, the tensions caused by all this are reflected in the minutes of the Downing Street meeting on the 8th of June. Oh, this is of a sort of inner circle committee. Richard Crossman was Secretary of State for Social Services. The minutes read as follows. The Secretary of State for Social Services said that if the government played on the nerve of the PLP, that's the Parliamentary Labour Party, Party yeah, and the nerve broke, we should lose all the ministers identified with the present policy. This was therefore an important matter of calculation, as the government should not play into the hands of Mr Callaghan, who would then become Prime Minister, with Mr Crossland as his Chancellor. That's Tony Crossland, who was President of the Board of Trade at this time. 
the Prime Minister said that whoever became Prime Minister in that situation would not be able to survive a month because of overseas reaction and an almost certain run on, run on sterling. That such possibilities are being discussed and minuted in Downing Street meetings is a powerful indication of just how tense things were at that time in government. The unions maintained their opposition to Castle's bill and suggested voluntary agreements instead. Wilson became fatigued through the numerous rounds of beer and sandwiches with the union leaders. The whole business reached a climax on the 17th of June. At a cabinet meeting, several ministers, including Callaghan, argued that uh, without an agreement with the unions, the backbenchers would not support the bill. Therefore, a compromise had to be found. Following a stormy and protracted meeting, the Cabinet agreed that Wilson and Castle could negotiate with the unions in the morning, but, uh, but the penal clauses were to be dropped. You will not find this in the official records, but Barbara Castle's and Richard Crossman's diaries show that Wilson exploded with anger at this Cabinet meeting. Richard Crossman, Secretary of State for Health and Social Services, quotes Wilson as telling his Cabinet colleagues at one point, you're soft, you're cowardly, you're lily-livered. Uh, on the morning of 18th of June, Wilson and Castle met with the TUC at number 10 and reached an agreement in which the unions gave a solemn and binding undertaking to accept TUC advice on unofficial strikes. When Wilson and Castle returned to the Cabinet with the news, they were applauded. Callaghan made a speech in which he promised that no one would work harder than him to win the next election but the atmosphere was very strained. Castle wrote, We hardly waited to listen to him and hurried out to the press conference, oozing contempt for the cowards from every pore. The verdict from the press was that the government had surrendered. Castle's industrial relations bill ran into further difficulties and was dropped. Strikes continued to be a serious problem in the second half of 69 and in the following years. The attempt to implement in place of strife was a very significant episode in British politics. If the bill had been passed, a great deal of future strife might have been avoided. As Dominic Sandbrook has commented, it was perhaps the greatest irony of all that the keeper of the cloth cap, referring to Jim Callaghan, who had done so much to help the unions defeat the bill, would himself be brought down by their excesses ten years later. This is obviously a contentious episode and th there's much that you know, can be debated about it. And now for something completely different, as they used to say on Monty Python, which was also first broadcast in 1969. And to coin a famous phrase from another TV programme of more recent times, who would have lived in a house like this? 48 Cheney Walk is one of Chelsea's most attractive locations. By the Thames, near Albert Bridge, it's a very elegant house of the Queen Anne type. I'm tempted to say, let's go through the keyhole. Uh, I've said it now. Here we see a room on the ground floor. There's a Turkish feel to some of the decor. I don't know if any of you have guessed, but I won't keep you in further suspense. The owner was one Michael Philip Jagger. And here I have a story to relate to you. On May the 28th, 1969, at 7.45pm, Jagger came out of 48 Cheney Walk and turned right into Cheney Row and got, out of his, got into his white Mercedes. There he was stopped and spoken to by several police officers. Jagger moved quickly back to the house, accompanied by the officers who later claimed that Jagger had shouted, Marianne, Marianne, don't open the door. It is the law. They are after the weed. I, uh, I couldn't do the voice, I decided. Uh, this, it was strongly denied by Jagger that he'd actually said this. And in fact, he said, I think, um, that he would never use such an archaic term as weed. Anyway, Marianne Faithful did open the door. And, and the aptly titled Detective Sergeant Robin Constable told Jagger that he had a warrant to search the house for drugs. Now, the officers claimed 
to find one quarter ounce of cannabis. And here is a photograph of the exhibit, which was produced in court at a later stage. And also a folded piece of paper containing some white powder. And these items were then apparently taken for tests. Jagger and Marianne were taken to Chelsea Station and charged with possessing cannabis. And at Great Marlborough Street Court, they pleaded not guilty to possessing cannabis. The case was adjourned until June the 23rd, and Jagger and Marianne were bailed at £50 each. Jagger claimed that Detective Sergeant Constable had tried to plant drugs and then solicit a £1,000 bribe from him, and this became the basis of his defence. And this is part of Jagger's statement made at his solicitors on the 23rd of June, following the hearing at the magistrate's court. He is talking about a conversation with Robin Constable, which he claimed had occurred immediately after the hearing earlier that day. Jagger claimed that the big piece of hashish that the police had found had shrunken in size since the night of the raid. All very mysterious. To quote from the statement, after the matter had been heard and we came into the room in which we had originally stood, Robin Constable came out too. He spoke to me in a low voice and said, notice the quantity was down, not a quarter pound piece anymore, was it? I said, yes, but you know it wasn't mine. Constable said, I didn't bring it, someone else did. <laughs> I said, who else? Constable said, to know that will cost you a big drink. I said, drop a note through my door. And you can see that the statement is clearly signed by Mick Jagger. The final court case was delayed while Jagger was in Australia filming Ned Kelly. And it was eventually held on the 26th of June, 1970. And here we've got some press cuttings of the case. Uh, Jagger was found, fined £200 with £50 guinea, guineas cost for possessing cannabis resin. And the charges against Faithful were dismissed. Now, another member of the Rolling Stones had appeared as a defendant in cases of possessing drugs in 67 and 68. Brian Jones. Here he is leaving West London Magistrates Court circa 68. There is a tragic story to relate about Brian Jones's demise, but let's just backtrack a bit in order to highlight his importance. Lewis Brian Hopkin Jones was born in Cheltenham on the 28th of February 1942. His parents encouraged him to take up music, initially through piano lessons, and he soon discovered his musical talent. He learnt to play the clarinet and the saxophone, and in 62, Brian left Cheltenham for London. He became a virtuoso blues musician and he used to enjoy hanging out at Ealing Jazz Club. He placed an ad in Jazz News magazine seeking musicians to form a rhythm and blues group and he duly recruited Ian Stu Stewart, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards into his newly formed band. So he really is the founder of the Rolling Stones. And the lineup took a little while to settle down with Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman joining after a few tryouts. It was Brian who came up with the name Rolling Stones after a Muddy Waters track that he liked. And in this early period, Jones was very much the leader of the group. The Rolling Stones started to make an impact on the music scene at their residency at the Crawdaddy Club at the Station Hotel in Richmond, opposite Richmond Station. They went on, of course, to have tremendous success and to make some of the most exciting records of the 60s. The adventurous music, musical talents of Brian Jones were shown by his playing of a dulcimer on Lady Jane, marimba on Under My Thumb, and sitar on Paint It Black. Jones was also adventurous in his choice of clothes as he became a sort of pioneering dandy, pushing the boundaries style-wise. But the increasing emphasis on the Jagger-Richards partnership and Jagger's high profile as lead singer displaced Jones from his original post of leader. Jones increasingly experimented with drink and drugs and you can see in photographs how his looks gradually deteriorated. Particularly after 65, 
He developed bags under his eyes, and his mood swings led to an alienation from the rest of the group. In November 68, Brian Jones bought Cotchford Farm near Hartfield in East Sussex. This once belonged to A.A. A. Milne and featured many relics of Winnie the Pooh and Christopher Robin. Another side of Brian Jones's character is shown here because he loved these associations with childhood. Philip Norman, biographer of the Stones, records that when musician and friend Alexis Corner visited Jones at Cotchford, it gave Jones, quote, special delight to show Alexis the sundial under which Milne's original manuscripts are reputedly buried and the bridge over the little stream where Pooh and Christopher Robin invented their Pooh Sticks game. Some who saw Jones around this time felt that he was beginning to get himself together, laying off the drugs and excitedly discussing future musical projects. In late May 69, Mick Jagger, Keith Richard and Charlie Watts visited Jones at Cotchford and they, and they agreed that Jones would leave the Stones. It was sort of a mutual agreement. On June the 9th, Brian's departure from the Stones became official. A statement was put out which read, I no longer see eye to eye with the others over the discs that we are cutting. And so we move to the fateful day of July the 2nd, exactly 40 years ago today. And here I'm going to read some extracts from Philip Norman. Wednesday, July the 2nd was an uneventful day at Cotchford Farm. Hot, sunny and silent, but for the murmuring of bees. It was a day in which the high pollen count brought suffering to asthma and hay fever victims all over Britain. In rural Sussex, naturally, the pollen count reached its maximum. Jones suffered from asthma and was heavily reliant on his inhaler. Norman records that Brian and Anna, that's Anna Wolin, his girlfriend, spent the early part of the evening drinking and watching Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In show on television. Shortly after 10, they headed over to the swimming pool. They were joined by Frank Thorogood and his girlfriend. Uh, maybe it's Thorogood, actually. I think that's pronounced Thorogood. He was a builder who was doing some work for Jones at the farm and was living there as well. Relaxing by the pool, the four of them drank brandy, vodka and whiskey and Jones took some amphetamine pills. At around midnight, Jones and Thorogood dived into the pool for a swim. It was there that Brian Jones died. At the inquest at East Grinstead, all three witnesses stated that they had gone into the house for a few minutes, leaving Jones in the pool, and when they returned, he was lying face down on the, at the bottom, totally still. They tried to revive him, but to no avail. By the time the police arrived, he was dead. According to Dr Albert Sachs, consultant pathologist at Queen Victoria Hospital, East Grinstead, death was due to drowning associated with alcohol, drugs and severe liver degeneration. All sorts of alternative theories have been put forward, particularly the theory that Jones was killed by Thorogood and the story that Thorogood had made a deathbed confession. Now, there are some mysterious circumstances surrounding the death. But I'm with Dominic Sandbrook on this one when he argues that the pathologist's statement is by far the most plausible explanation for Brian Jones's death. Sandbrook goes on to comment, if any explanation beyond that of simple accident is necessary, it is that he was a victim of his own demons, his self-confidence eroded by chronic insecurity and his physical health undermined by drink and drugs. However you look at it, it was a tragic loss of a brilliant, highly creative and special person. Bill Wyman later wrote, Brian Jones had died, signalling the end of an era. The Rolling Stones could never be the same. The band changed, but the band went on. And arrangements for the Rolling Stones to play a free concert at Hyde Park on Saturday the 5th of July were already far advanced when news of Jones's death came. The group decided to go ahead with the performance as a memorial for Brian, in the words of Charlie Watts. And an estimated 250,000 people poured into the park on that hot afternoon. A series of bands played first. 
When the Stones eventually arrived on stage, Jagger's appearance was remarkable. In Philip's, Philip Norman's words, it looked like he was wearing a little girl's party dress. He addressed the crowd. Again, I won't be tempted to do the voice, I think. Now listen, will you just cool it for a minute? Because I really would like to say something about Brian, about how we feel about him just going when we didn't expect him to. He then read two stanzas from Shelley's Adonis, the poet's elegy on the death of John Keats, beginning, Peace, peace, he is not dead, he doth not sleep, he hath awakened from the dream of life. As Shelley's words died away, the stone's stagehands opened several cardboard boxes and shook them towards the crowd, releasing several hundred white butterflies. Although this was a very powerful visual image, as Dominic Sandbrook comments, conservationists, however, <laughs> objected that many of the butterflies must have suffocated in the cramped boxes, and London's gardeners complained for weeks <laughs> that they had caused terrible damage to their plants. <laughs> um, I think we, you can perhaps see some of these butterflies. Actually, some of them seem to have perhaps landed on the stage there, I think, near Bill Wyman. The Stones went on to give a rather shaky musical performance, but perhaps that wasn't surprising, given the circumstances. Now, believe it or not, the National Archives holds an Office of Works Royal Parks Division file entitled The Use of Hyde Park for Pop Concerts. Here's an extract from a Metropolitan Police on that file relating to the 5th of July concert. It reads... Most of the arrangements made by Black Hill Enterprises were successful and the artists arrived and left without much difficulty. However, the provision of barriers and stewards around the stage was unsuccessful as this area was full of people when the Rolling Stones appeared. And although you can't see it here, um, in the margin, someone's written at that point because of lack of control. It continues, the stewards, who were a group of motorcyclists dressed in Nazi-style uni uniform, Nazi-type uniform, and called Hell's Angels, were totally ineffective, despite their forbidding style of dress and general appearance. <laughs> Rather withering comment, isn't it? Following the concert, Joe Bergman, the Rolling Stones' publicity agent, wrote a letter of thanks to Mr Hare, superintendent of the Central Parks, and it reads, Dear Mr Hare, the Rolling Stones have asked me to write to you to express their thanks and appreciation for the help which you and your department contributed to last Saturday's concert. I hope there was no damage done to any park property, but if so, would you please let us know and we will try to sort out any problems. The file shows that there was only a small amount of damage, considering the huge numbers who had attended. But some of the trees were damaged, and Black Hill Enterprises, the concert promoters, offered the, offered the department a tree to be planted as a goodwill gesture, which I think was accepted. Now, the uh, subject of pop concerts, I, love, I think that's the right and proper term to use, in royal parks, was debated by the House of Lords on the 25th of June. And here is a quote from Baroness Llewellyn Davies of Haystoe. I am quite sure that it is a good thing that the young should be able sometimes to have the use of the parks for the sort of things they are most interested in, I believe that should read. The groups which play in the park at these popular concerts are in fact internationally known. They are among the best of the groups. Their names may not be wholly familiar to your lordships, but there were groups like The Cream, The Pink Floyd, The Move, and one which I am sure will delight noble lords opposite, the election. I am quite sure they would approve of that. Mm. Or would they, in fact? But uh, anyway, it obviously, you know, reached a na national forum there. Anyway, we now, we're now going to look at an historical event of worldwide significance that took part that summer. And on May the 25th, 1961, President John F. Kennedy addressed Congress and declared, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal 
before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. And in July 69, this goal was fulfilled. Saturn V, carrying Apollo 11, was launched on July the 16th, 1969, from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And it carried Neil Armstrong, commander, Michael Collins, command module pilot, and Edwin Eugene Buzz Aldrin, Jr. On 9.18 p.m. British time, on the 20th of July, 69, the lunar module Eagle landed on the moon's sea of tranquility. Soon after this, Neil Armstrong descended the ladder of the Eagle and became the first human to set foot on another world, declaring that it was one small step for man, once one giant leap for mankind. Now, of course, you know, people have pointed out that grammatically this really should have read one small step for a man. But I think that actually the way that Neil Armstrong said it, in some ways it reads, it scans more dramatically in his version, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This is an image from a TV camera which relayed this back to millions of viewers on Earth. The technological achievement of, of just that alone is pretty amazing. And there was a real sense of the global village coming together to watch this historic event. Sadly, very little film of the BBC's coverage with James Burke, Cliff Mitchell Moore and Patrick Moore survives. Very unfortunate because we can only just sort of guess really at their excited enthusiasm as the news was coming through. There are very few clips indeed that survive. But according to what I've read, the BBC played David Bowie's Space Oddity during its coverage, which was newly released. An interesting piece of trivia, I'm sure you agree. And the, the single took a long time, in fact, to make an impact on the charts. Finally, it made the top ten in October, but it has come to be regarded as a classic record. Now, this is Buzz Aldrin, photographed by Neil Armstrong, who appears in the visor's Reflections, famous photograph. And here's Buzz Aldrin with the US flag. Now, the National Archives holds a Foreign and Commonwealth Office file on the Apollo program. And it's mostly full of congratulatory messages to NASA and the US administration. But these are interesting in their own right. Here we have a telegram from this file from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to Washington, dated the 21st of July. It begins, the message from the Prime Minister which follows should be delivered to the White House for the President when the lunar astronauts are safely back within the mothership. You should not deliver the message until it is certain that the astronauts are back in the mothership. You can see the concern. It wasn't just about you know, getting the timing right for presentational reasons. It was being sure that the astronauts were safe. The main message from Harold Wilson reads, I told you when you telephoned me this afternoon how excited everyone was in the United Kingdom by the success of the Apollo 11 mission, but I held back my formal message until I knew that the astronauts had returned safely to their mothership. I send on behalf of Her Majesty's Government to you to astronauts Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins, and to all associated with it, our warmest congratulations on the magnificent success of the Apollo 11 mission. This epic voyage of discovery is an inspiration to us all. We offer our hopes and prayers for the crew of Apollo 11 for the successful completion of their mission and safe return to Earth. And here are the lunar astronauts making their return from the moon, this is the lunar module, the Eagle, approaching the mothership, command service module Columbia for docking, with the Earth rise in the background, and that was taken on July the 21st. And I think that the word iconic is much overused these days, but surely, if any images deserve that adjective, these do. The British press reported the event enthusiastically. The crew of Apollo 11 were placed in quarantine after returning to Earth and visited by President Richard Nixon. Now, it's a cosy kind of picture, that, isn't it? It doesn't look staged. I don't think so. In fact, 
you know, if you believe the conspiracy theorists, then all of these pictures are faked, and the message of congratulations that I showed you would have been a pointless charade. But I'm just going to mention that Buzz Aldrin punched Bart Sibrel, a conspiracy theorist filmmaker, in the face on the 9th of September 2002, and this was captured on camera. Good. Uh, <laughs> perhaps I shouldn't say that, but... Anyway. So, the incredible achievement of the moon landing was not the only fantastic technological development of that year, because we now turn to Concorde, the famous supersonic passenger airliner, and it was the product of an Anglo-French government treaty, and it brought together the manufacturing capabilities of Aerospatiale and the British Aircraft Association. Now, Concorde entered service in 1976, and it went on to make regular transatlantic flights to the United States from London and Paris. But it was first flown in 69. Concorde 001 made its first test flight from Toulouse on March the 2nd of that year. Like many people, I'm fascinated by the graceful form of this aeroplane. The first UK-built Concorde flew from Filton to RAF Fairford on the 9th of April, 69. There were large crowds and hundreds of members of the press at Filton. The flight test programme then continued through mid-69, and Concorde 001 first went supersonic on the 1st of October. Now, there's an interesting backstory to Concorde, which can be traced in the records we hold, and I'd like to share this with you. To look at this, we just need to backtrack a bit from 69. Now, we hold a whole file on the subject which caused a raging controversy in the 60s, entitled Concorde, notice without, without the E on the end, spelling of name. Yes, it's true. Uh, the aircraft was initially referred to in Britain as Concorde, with the E, the French spelling. Now, the story has grown up that the name was officially changed to Concorde without the E, the British spelling, by Harold Macmillan, after he'd been insulted by General de Gaulle <laughs> on a visit. Apparently, de Gaulle had had a cold and said he couldn't see him, and Macmillan came back in a bit of a huff. Now, now, I've not seen any direct evidence of Macmillan, Macmillan's involvement in this. But it was the case, that, of course, that Anglo-French relations were pretty strained at times, particularly due to de Gaulle's use of the veto on two occasions regarding Britain's application to join the EEC. Certainly, the file we have shows that civil servants dug their heels in over the issue, as well as government ministers. Here we have a memo from W.P. Shovelton, an assistant secretary in the Ministry of Aviation, dated the 21st of January, 63, and it reads, US stroke AIRA has noticed that many authorities, e.g. Daily Telegraph, Observer, Bristol Sidley House Journal, <laughs> to name only three, continue to use the spelling Concord with the E. Can direct hints be placed in the right quarters at the right time that the spelling is as in English? We don't want the French spelling gradually to gain world currency with all the implications that would mean. <laughs> On the contrary, we want the British spelling to gain world currency. Now, one of the uh, concerns was the worry that if the French spelling was adopted, the layperson would assume that the aircraft was principally French in origin. But you don't need to read between the lines, really, to see a sort of nationalistic air creeping in. The issue dragged on for several years. It was Tony Benn, Minister of Technology in Harold Wilson's government, who sorted the matter out. In December 1967, at the French rollout of Concorde in Toulouse, Tony Benn pronounced on the subject. Here is an extract from his speech in which he used his charm to good effect. Britain, like France, has a great stake in Concorde. Our years of cooperation have only been marred by one disagreement. Up until now, we have never been able to agree as to how Concorde should be spelt. In English, 
Concord ends with plain D, exactly as it is pronounced. With splendid generosity, our French friends here insist upon adding an E. No amount of argument or discussion, no series of committees or ministerial meetings have ever produced an agreement on this point. It is intolerable that we should continue in this way. I have therefore decided to resolve it myself. From now on, the British Concord will also be spelt with an E. The letter E symbolises many things. E stands for excellence, for England, for Europe and for Entente, that alliance of sympathy and affection which binds our two countries together. But even this speech provoked further controversy. In his memoirs, Ben states that he received a letter from an irate Scotsman claiming, <laughs> you talk about E for England, but part of it is made in Scotland. I think it was the nose cone. Ben deftly replied that it was also E for Ecosse, the French name for Scotland. <laughs> what a deft little move. And he said, I might have added E for extravagance and E for escalation as well, as it was very expensive. Though Ben remained a champion of Concord and was on its last flight in October 2003. The success of the Concorde prototypes in 69, coupled with the moon landing, gave a feeling of unstoppable technological progress and a feeling that everything was possible. But that summer, in part of the United Kingdom, there were serious problems. The conflict in Northern Ireland, known as the Troubles, is conventionally dated from the late 60s. There was a growing campaign for Catholic civil rights, in January 67, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association was set up. Its aims included legislation to prevent discrimination, a fair basis for electoral boundaries and housing, housing allocation, one man, one vote for local government elections, and the disbanding of the B Specials, which were, whose official name was the Ulster Special Constabulary. Terence O'Neill, Prime Minister of Northern Ireland from 63 to 69, introduced some reforms, but many people in the, in the Protestant community were unhappy about these reforms, whereas many in the Catholic community felt that they did not go far enough. There were violent in incidents in 66, which resulted in deaths, but affairs in Northern Ireland were rarely discussed in Westminster until 69. In October 68, there was a major clash between the civil rights demonstrators and the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the RUC, in Derry. And there was also huge anger over the apparently indiscriminate use of batons by the RUC. The situation deteriorated further with a violent incident at Burntollet Bridge near Derry in January of 69. And sectarian violence started to escalate. On the 28th of April, Terence O'Neill resigned the Premiership and handed it over to James Chichester Clark. He was a distant relative of O'Neill, a Londonderry farmer and a former major in the Irish Guards. The situation in Northern Ireland worsened. There was looting in Derry in July and riots broke out in Belfast in early August. The Battle of the Bogside began on the 12th of August. The Bogside is a predominantly Catholic neighbourhood outside the city walls of Derry. And the, result, and the riot resulted from a confrontation between the Catholic residents of the Bogside, police and members of the Apprentice Boys of Derry who were due to march past the Bogside along the city walls to commemorate the relief of the city by Protestant troops in late July 1689. The disturbance developed into a major battle. The RUC used CS gas. The entire community in the bog side seemed to mobilise against the RUC. Fighting broke out in Belfast, Armagh, Newry and elsewhere. By the 14th of August, it looked like civil war. The violence was relayed on television screens to British citizens on the mainland. As Dominic Sandbrook puts it, puts it to many viewers watching the evening news, it was simply inconceivable that riot and destruction on such a scale could take place 
in a part of the United Kingdom where people listened to the Beatles, tuned into Coronation Street and shopped at Sainsbury's. Late on the afternoon of 14th of August, Chichester Clark and his colleagues asked the Home Office to send troops into Derry. Here is part of the statement released that day. The Government of Northern Ireland has informed the UK Government that as a result of severe and prolonged rioting in Londonderry, it has no alternative but to ask for the assistance of the troops, at present stationed in Northern Ireland, to prevent a breakdown of law and order. James Callaghan, Home Secretary, was on a plane flying back from Cornwall when the request came through on the radio telephone. He wrote, permission granted on a note, and an army battalion went into Derry that same afternoon, and the fighting died down. But in Belfast, the fighting continued. Here is a note of a telephone conversation between the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary on Friday, August 15th at 11.10am. The Home Secretary said he thought the Prime Minister might like to know the latest position in Northern Ireland. He said it had been a bad night in Belfast. There was a report that one of those killed was a British soldier on leave from the army who had been found on the roof with a machine gun beside him. He had spoken to Major Chichester Clark this morning. He sounded weary but was most grateful for the government's assistance in agreeing to provide troops in Londonderry. The Northern Ireland Cabinet was meeting at 12 noon and would probably decide then whether they wanted troops to be used for Belfast. Chichester Clark said that the situation in Belfast was, at the moment, very tense. He had told Chichester Clark to get some sleep as soon as possible and that there might be further political discussions between him, the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary next week. So that document does very much reflect the crisis, I think. Um, and Jerry Fitt of the Republican Labour Party, who held the Belfast West seat, sent this telegram to Harold Wilson on the 15th of August. Demand immediate recall of Parliament in view of serious situation in Northern Ireland, where many innocent lives may be lost within hours. Under pressure from local Catholic residents, Fitt phoned Jim Callaghan and asked for the troops to be sent in. According to Jerry Fitt, Callaghan replied, Jerry, I can get the army in, but it's going to be a devil of a job to get it out. But Callaghan did go give the go-ahead for troops to be used in Belfast later that day, and this again brought the violence to an end. According to Richard Crossman, who had a meal with Callaghan that night, Callaghan remarked, by God, it's much more fun being Home Secretary than the Chancellor. This is what I like doing, taking decisions. Callaghan also later reflected on the irony that it was the Catholics of Northern Ireland who begged the British government to send the troops in. British soldiers on patrol here in the mainly Catholic bogside area of Derry. British soldiers were initially welcomed into nationalist communities when they arrived in August 69. This picture courtesy of the MOD. The reaction of many Bogside residents was, thanks for saving us. British troops were offered tea and sandwiches, but this honeymoon atmosphere was not to last for long, and the troops came to be seen by the nationalists as an army of occupation. Violence exploded in Northern Ireland on a huge scale from 1970 onwards. Now, on a lighter note, I mentioned that people were listening to the Beatles earlier. So what were they up to in the summer of 69? The Beatles were busy recording Abbey Road at EMI Studios in, naturally enough, Abbey Road, St John's Wood. The classic album cover is another photograph which I, th I think truly deserves the description iconic. The main body of recording was done between April and August 69. The cover photograph was taken in Abbey Road on August the 8th at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, just thought I'd throw that in. And generations of fans have been making the same trip over that zebra crossing, more or less, ever since the album was released in September 69. <clears throat> it's my favourite album of all time, by the way, for the wonderful sequence of music on the second side. But what else was happening in the hit parade, as they used to call it, 
Let's look at the top 10 for the week ending the 19th of July, around the time of the moon landing. Now, of uh, <coughs> particular note here is Something in the Air by Funderclap Newman, which topped the charts for three weeks that July. It was produced by Pete Townsend of The Who, who also played bass on it, and it perfectly captured the mood of the times with its rather blissed-out vibes and its refrain, we have got to get it together now. It seems rather appropriate, I think, to be the number one single at the time of the Apollo mission. I, sh I should also mention Proud Mary by Credence Clearwater Revival, with its lazy paddle wheel beat, as Philip Norman describes it. This record was a great favourite of Brian Jones, and apparently it was constantly on his turntable in the weeks prior to his death. He he thought he'd like the idea of maybe trying to model a group on that kind of back-to-basics approach of Credence Clearwater Revival. And, you know, while we're just looking at the mood of the times, you know, the times generally, what was the weather like in the summer of 69? A, a burning question. Well, it's quite difficult to find a source that will tell you in meaningful terms about the quality of summers from historical periods. I mean, I found it quite difficult to find. But diaries are a great source it seems to me. As uh, Richard Crossman's diaries are excellent for their insights into high politics. I quoted them earlier. But from looking at them, you can also gauge that the weather, focusing on southern England anyway, was particularly good in June and July. For example, on the 8th of June, Richard Crossman records, we are having the most perfect June weather now, here, he says. And on the 13th of June, he writes, it was enormously hot. And on the 13th of July, he says, we are having a splendid summer now. So I think it was pretty good. Maybe it was a bit more mixed in August, but um, I just thought I'd uh, share that with you. At Wimbledon that year, Australian Rod Laver, Laver won the Grand Slam men's singles final, and Anne Jones won the ladies' singles final. Uh, Anne Jones is one of Britain's most successful ever tennis players. The English cricket team had a strong lineup at this time. England was captained by Ray Illingworth. And in 69, England defeated New Zealand and West Indies in two three-match series, in both cases by two wins and one draw. Once again, now for something completely different. In 1969, the hippie culture reached its peak. But what was meant by the term hippie? It was a youth movement which originated in the US and the word hippie was derived from the words hip and hipster. These words were in currency in jazz circles in the 40s and 50s. Black, black Americans used these words to describe sex appeal and style. By the end of 65, the word hippie had established itself, particularly in San Francisco. It came to describe young bohemians who had created their own communities, used drugs such as cannabis and LSD, celebrated the sexual revolution, and listened to rock music. They were fascinated by Eastern philosophy and spiritual ideas. Very few young people in the US or Britain actually dropped out of mainstream society to become hippies in the full sense, but many adopted hippie fashions, long hair, jeans, flowery items of clothing. Here, hippie fashions and values had a huge impact on culture, and by 69, you could see its influence everywhere. You could even see it in this road safety poster that we have, encouraging motorcyclists to wear helmets. I think the slogan, although you can't see it here, is, helmets are in. Which, and this, of course, has a sort of psychedelic quality to it. Even the children's favourite, Scooby-Doo, was influenced by hippie values, particularly in the shape of Scooby's minder, or best mate, Shaggy, whose voice was delivered by American DJ Casey Chasm. Scooby-Doo began its original US run in September of 69. One particular festival held at this time came to symbolise the counterculture of the late 60s. Woodstock, a music and art festival, held in the rural town of Bethel, New York, from August the 15th to August the 18th. Nearly half a million people attended, 
It was captured for posterity in a 1970 documentary film. In England, as we have seen, pop promoters had already staged the Hyde Park Festival in June. In fact, a series of festivals had been held at that venue. And the crowning glory was the Isle of Wight Festival. Now, this festival was our Woodstock. It was on a smaller scale, admittedly, but it was also legendary. It was held on August the 30th and 31st at Woodside Bay near Ryde, with headliners being The Who, Bob Dylan and the band. An estimated 150,000 attended the Isle of Wight Festival. Now it's often said that the hippie ethos was killed off by Altamont, California in December 69 when a member of the audience, Meredith Hunter, was stabbed to death during a Rolling Stones concert. But tragic though that event obviously was, I think it's a bit of a lazy cliche to say that that marked the end of the hippie dream. Hippie culture continued to permeate mainstream culture right into the early 70s in terms of music and fashions. But it's also important to keep a sense of perspective about just how many people engaged fully with 60s youth culture. It is interesting to note that the top three best-selling albums of 69 were, in reverse order, His Orchestra, His Singers by Ray Conniff, The Sound of Music soundtrack, and at number one, The Best of the Seekers. Now, I'm not criticising. In fact, I like a lot of that material myself. But uh, these were not revolutionary sounds. I mean, Abbey Road was number four. In his excellent book, White Heat, Dominic Sandbrook makes the point that, quote, although popular accounts of the era concentrate on the small group of affluent, self-confident young people who welcome change, millions of others clung firmly to what they knew and loved. Many people carried on with their hobbies, DIY, gardening, stamp collecting, whatever it might be, just as they'd always had done, and there was a strong sense of nostalgia for the past. I think that's one of the reasons why TV programmes such as Dad's Army were so popular, a programme which began in 68. Back briefly to politics, and as we saw earlier, April to June 69 was a particularly difficult time for Harold Wilson when questions were asked about his leadership and his poll ratings slipped. From the late summer, however, Wilson bounced back in the polls. It was felt that the government had handled the crisis in Northern Ireland well. Also, the economy was doing better. The trade figures for September were good. They showed a big rise in exports from July to August. And at the Labour Party conference, Wilson was back on his best campaigning form and delivered a bold and witty speech, which went, well, it was very well received. Despite this, he was to go on to lose the 1970 general election to Edward Heath's Conservative Party, but that's another story. So, to reach a conclusion, the summer of 69 was certainly not a quiet time. As we've seen, it was all happening. And as we've also seen, we've also seen how the public records held here at the National Archives helped to enrich our understanding of modern history. The minutes and notes in our files, and things like telegrams in particular, give a powerful sense of immediacy, of history being recorded in the making and right at source. One of the most remarkable and attractive features of 60s culture was the incredible, seemingly unstoppable optimism of much pop music, beginning with the Beatles' breakthrough in 63. And although pop culture did reflect changing times with darker tones creeping in, it is an optimism that carries on into the late 60s and beyond, despite the violent events of 68. These times were, after all, dubbed the age of Aquarius in the musical hair. It's an optimism that could well be justified, you might argue, given the historical achievement of the moon landing and the rolling out of Concord, a feeling that everything was possible. But as we've seen, that summer of 69 also saw turmoil in Harold Wilson's government over Barbara Castle's attempt to reform the trade unions 
as well as over Harold Wilson's leadership, the death of Brian Jones, the eruption of violence in Northern Ireland, and the sending of troops there. And to understand the 60s, one has to acknowledge the contradictions, the tension between the optimistic pop culture revolution and the gloomy, darker elements and notions of national decline and so forth. That's the reason why, to some, they were the swinging 60s, and to others, a decade of disillusion. Although I realise the dangers of mythologising the 60s, it's a decade that I still see as a golden age in many ways. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 2nd of July 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.